Welcome to Business Leader Breakthroughs, where we help unlock the potential in you, your teams, and your business. I'm your host, Ryan Castle, along with Dr. Mike Ashby. We share insights, experiences, and stories on achieving breakthrough success in business and life. In addition to a podcast, The Breakthrough is a coaching and advisory business that provides programs for business leaders, owners, and managers to develop your skills and capabilities to boost your business and enjoy a better life. To learn more, click the link in the episode show notes or go to thebreakthrough.co. Now let the breakthroughs begin. Ron, welcome along to the Business Leaders Breakthrough podcast. Uh, fantastic to have you. We are connecting. You're in Seattle. I'm in uh, Auckland. Uh, brilliant to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Ryan, it is a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. So fun to be with a, a compadre so far away. Indeed, indeed. And let's hope that whilst this uh, interview is uh, one of those virtual ones where we're shooting beams of light across the earth, uh, let's hope in the future we get to uh, sit down face to face and do it all over again. I, I have been on any number of podcasts hosted in New Zealand uh, and Australia as well. And I've told every every one of my wonderful hosts, I'll come off the floor. It is one of the places in the world I have not had to get a chance to visit. So it's to come visit and I will. Great. As soon as we get those uh, borders open, uh, Ron, we'll send you an invite. I th- that's a well, your, your nation has certainly led the way and been an example for all of us in, in what you guys have done. So bravo. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're uh, we're proud of it. Whilst we're a small uh, nation, our prime minister keeps talking about the team of five million, and it, it does feel like it's been a pretty concerted effort from the uh, the whole country to get us. It's been an country. it's been an inspiring story to watch. Mm. Yeah, cool. Hey, Ron, let's uh, throw a couple of fast fact questions at you, so the audience can get to know you a little bit uh, more. Are you yep. a breakfast or dinner guy? Dinner. Dinner, yeah. And yeah, yeah. is there a, is there a standout favorite? You know that that one you'd always go to if you could. Yeah. Uh, so these days, I'm eating a lot of salad and chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the comfort food days, it's meatloaf and mashed potatoes. Nice, nice. I like the combo. Uh, everything in moderation, including moderation, right? Absolutely. Good. Alrighty. On a holiday, would we likely find you doing something adventurous like bungee jumping, or more likely on the pool lounger with a cocktail? Uh, I, I think somewhere in the middle, you'd find me on, on a, on a road bike biking or on a tennis court playing tennis in the winter. You might find me on skis. Um, and if I were on the couch, it would be watching a movie. Mm. Nice. Okay. And what would that movie be? Would it be a thriller or a comedy? Uh, it might be a documentary, um, mm-hmm. or a good, a good, uh, I love dramas that are based on real life stories. I love watching, uh, things that actually took place great and you're an author yourself uh when you're when you're reading but and we'll on the show we'll talk about uh some of the research you have going currently and that you've done previously in the resulting books um but tell me when you're consuming uh, books yourself are you a electronic uh reader or do you like to have the physical thing in your hand you can see him behind me i like i like a real book i do have a kindle app and I do have a lot of Kindle books on the Kindle thing when I'm doing my research just to, not to I have a library over there with lots of books in it but my wife keeps saying enough so I'm trying to balance what I bring in the house but but I like a good old-fashioned book yeah I feel like that's uh, maybe a losing battle for your wife that one I think that that uh, book stack's going to keep growing uh important question cats or dogs dogs oh, love you love you even more already um and tell me routine wise are you an early riser or a night owl night owl Mm. I know. As a as a writer, is that the productive time for you? Do you like to settle into a bit of a, a night session and get some some pages done? Uh, my best writing happens on planes. I actually I actually believe that physiologically, the infusion of oxygen into my brain, I can crank out pages when I've been 
when I've been pressed up against book deadlines, I'll go get on a plane and just fly around to write. <laughs> you might have to uh, change your approach a little. The uh, availability of planes is a little, a little more scarce just at the moment. These days, yeah. So my writing is more on uh, outdoors or on a, on a tablet. Yeah. Um, in a comfortable place. And have you thought about just getting the uh, oxygen bottle in, into the war room and just put the old oxygen mask you on? You know, they have the oxygen bars now. You can go to the oxygen bar and just go get a hit of oxygen. I, I wonder if I should just get one installed in my home. Yeah, I think I think it's a good uh, good plan. Could work. Alrighty. Uh, look, Ron, you're the CEO of Neverland, uh, an organization that helps uh, leaders transform themselves and their organizations. Uh, we're interested to learn what you've observed at the front line of helping leaders and organizations do that. Lead off, tell us what's top of mind for you at the moment. What are you, what's most interesting to you? What's, uh, you know, taking your time? Yeah. So there are actually three of us that sort of co-lead uh, now when we started it together 15 years ago. And, you know, these days working virtually, so much of our our relationships are very long-term relationships because our projects are very in-depth organizational transformation products. And so learning to do those virtually when you're making really hard decisions about configurations of an organization and where to put assets and how to direct work. And it's, a, it's been an interesting, interesting time for us from a, a, a you know, sort of fire hose of learning to figure out how to do that in virtual settings. So that's certainly one thing. Uh, I, the other thing is uh, I've just finished um, the last uh, batch of research for our firm, it was a, based on a 15-year study with more than 3,200 leaders. Um, our 10-year study was done you both, but we're done using really phenomenal AI technology, uh, where we could really feed in lots of data to machine learning and let it tell us what it meant. Which is, I have to tell you, Ryan, hyper creepy. <laughs> when you see that these machines are making incredible meaning of data, mm -hmm. um, it, it's a little bit, it, it's fascinating, but it's a little creepy. So we decided on the second study, whereas in the first study, we gave parameters on leadership. We were isolating for individual behavior. This time around, we wanted to isolate for systemic behavior, so everything but individual behavior. And we decided, let's snub our noses at the academics a little bit and not tell the machine what the parameters are. Like, like, let's not give it the variables of a good research hypothesis, which typically ends up having a study return what you want to hear anyway. Sure. We, we decided, let's let the machine tell us what the parameters should be nice. and, then go find, and then go to the drill sites that it suggests and see what we learn. Uh, and oh my gosh, uh, what it came back to us and said was that you can predict under what conditions uh, systemically people will, people will tell the truth or lie, behave justly or unjustly, and behave purposely or selfishly. Uh, and we went back to the drill sites and ran multiple regression analysis and statistically modeled the conditions and uh, identified four very interesting patterns of the correlations between what will predict whether or not somebody is going to uh, tell you the truth or put you on the headlines of a newspaper you never wanted to be in. So it's been fascinating. So that that uh, research is done. We're now in the middle of I'm right in mode writing my next book, which is called To Be Honest. Uh, lead with the power of truth, justice, and purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think, Ron, these are uh, easy words to throw around. Uh, we'll say uh, in some ways less impact or, or less pertinent, but certainly as leaders of business and going, how do we lead our teams to, to greatness and how do we bring some of those uh, words that you've talked about to, to life? So uh, would would love it if you could dig into that and give yeah. some insights into into what, you, what you've learned. Well, the thing I love that you pointed out first, Ryan, is that talk is cheap, right? These are big words that people love to throw around. And I think one of the findings in the research is that we're tired of the words. Mm -hmm. um, that first of all, what we did learn was that they're highly inter inter 
intercorrelated, meaning that you cannot establish an organization with truth and justice and purpose unless you have all three. And I actually think that if we look to the private sector, if you want to impact societal issues like inequality, racism, all kinds of access to opportunities, the private sector is actually in a great position to do it if they choose to. And it's it's always so heartbreaking to see how it takes tragedy to awaken that consciousness and you hope we don't waste the, the pain of this. So the very first finding was what we called strategic clarity, meaning are you who you say you are? So if an organization, we all make promises, we have mission statements, we have vision statements, we have values, we have operating principles, we have brand promises. And so we're so used to us being cosmetic campaigns for external consumption on a wall, on a screensaver, on a lobby wall. Uh, But if you ask people, well, tell me what your company's mission is, or tell me, do you live by your values? You get lots of eye rolling. Well, it turns out that duplicity has a cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you say one thing and do another, meaning people cannot locate them, their own personal purpose or reason for being in your story, or your story contradicts why they're on the planet, you are three times more likely to have people lie, behave unfairly, and withhold the truth and be self-interested. Because once, once you have created a sense that we say one thing but do another, that's now your norm. So we, you can't say, we say one thing and do another here, but we actually, our actions and words match here. You've now given everybody of your employees permission to say one thing and do another mm-hmm. and trust that they will. Statistical models work both ways. So if you are in fact aligned and behave congruently with who you say you are, you are three times more likely to have people tell you the truth, be- behave fairly and justly and do what's right for the greater good. The second finding was accountability. The oh so painful word that if you ask people in organization, what does accountability mean here? You get all kinds of great words like blame, punishment, bloodshed, lawyers, um, you, you don't ever get wow. the true meaning of accountability. Uh, what you hope it would mean, which is my job is to make you your best. My job is to bring out your best performance. Um, so if your accountability systems are seen to be unfair, not your reward systems, it's not about pay, but how you measure. So if I feel unseen and unheard, if I feel like my contribution is, mis- is distorted, I now have to lie to hide my mistakes and embellish my accomplishments. So if you're widespread, you know, the, the performance appraisal. At the end of the year, I fill it out, you hand it into HR, right? That horrible, insufferable process. Yes. If that's the case, you are four times more likely to have people lie, withhold the truth, and behave unfairly. But if your accountability systems are seen to be honest and fair, that my work is adjudicated uh, in, an, in a caring, empathic, and fair way, you're now four times more likely to have people tell you their mistakes, tell you the truth, do what's right for a greater good, and behave with justice. Let me uh, yeah. ask a question there. So what have you observed around actual good accountability systems? Um, I had seen a, a company in New Zealand called Prudential. They moved to a, a four-day work week, but still paid everyone for five days. Uh, it's been quite groundbreaking. They said it gave them great productivity, productivity improvements. And I posed very much an accountability question to the to the CEO and said, you know, how, how do you figure this out with your team? Uh, and he said, look, it, it's really about asking uh, people the value question. So how will you add value to the organization this, uh, this, work, this day, this week, this month? But there was no mandated way in which they tried to uh, determine what that value was because you obviously have many different uh, roles and responsibilities. Some are very easy to measure, um, some not so not so much. So that accountability piece, and probably a word that our organisation uses a lot is contribution, which you mentioned, which is like, what's your contribution to the 
to the business this week uh, and, and being focused on that rather than time at the desk or, uh, you know, metric numbers, et cetera. So uh, those are some of the concepts that I've, I've come across that I've been interested in. What's been your observation of where that that's a great, those are great, great thoughts, Ryan. I think we've just, we've so misunderstood and bastardized the word. Um, we have, we've put in HR systems that are intended to make things fair, but what they actually wind up doing is they neuter individuality, right? We put people in boxes and categories. We have forced distribution curves. Um, we, we, then we pile the money on top of that. Um, we, we, we teach accountability as an annual event. Um, maybe with a quarterly check-in, there are cumbersome forms. So what did we do five years ago? Companies started throwing out the maybe with the bathwater and said, we're not doing this anymore at all. Great. So now we won't hold anybody accountable. Mm-hmm. So we threw out the documentation and told leaders, now you're off the hook from having, having the conversation. The core unit of analysis before you do any of the accoutrement is the relationship between a leader and a follower. The quality of that relationship, the truth-telling, the feedback, the coaching, the, the focus on contribution and not necessarily just metrics, and the, the innate understanding that my role as your boss is to see that you are at your best to do whatever I have to do to make sure your contribution is one you're proud of and one that we needed. Without that, everything else you build on top of that is crap. And so in organizations where people have actually focused on that relationship, where there's been transparency and psychological safety and there's good coaching skills. And you know, some companies are actually just calling the leaders coaches. They're not even calling the managers anymore where that unit of analysis is actually focused on, on being high of high quality. The documentation processes, the reward processes, the, all the other stuff can fall into line. But when you want to cover up the failure of that relationships with neutralized forms and processes and standardized approaches that neutralize or hide a leader's incompetence, Mm-hmm. that's where you get into a real trouble and real unfairness because now not only have you made, not made it fair, you've made it unfair and you've made me invisible. Yes. I think you that. have to make that relationship, the core understanding of what accountability is and, and, and flip the script on, I adjudicate punishment. I adjudicate rewards. I evaluate you. Um, and all the things that, I mean, have you ever in your life heard somebody say, I really look forward to my performance appraisal? <laughs> uh, no. That's like saying I look forward to a proctology exam. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I don't think that's happening either. Think about the moment in my life, annually, quarterly, who cares how often it is, every six months, whatever it is, that I get to talk about myself and I get to have my, my work shined and spotlighted. The, the, the place where my, my, where my purpose in the world is most examined is insufferable. How, how do we screw that up? How could we have so bad days miss the moment mm-hmm. where the place where you will extract somebody's best you end up extracting anxiety, frustration, defensiveness, and resentment. Yes. And, and then we institutionalize it. So that's, that's the second one. So um, I can move on to the third one. Uh, let, me, let me just add in a, a comment around that. You know, we very much subscribe to uh, this being able to change the culture of an organization for the better, you know, from the middle out. And that from the middle out, that's um, a term I first saw with uh, Marcus Buckingham, um, who's authored a, you know, some good leadership uh, insights as well. And in so many organizations we work with and talk to, they go, we totally agree that, you know, you really do experience culture with, uh, you know, five or 10 people you most interact with. If you're in a larger organization, you probably uh, very rarely get to interact with the CEO or the you know, the senior leadership table. So uh, it's one thing to have that leadership table prescribe what our culture is going to be like. It's another thing to go, what is it an experience like on a day-to-day level? And our observation, and I'm interested in 
uh, if you've seen the same observation in your work, is that uh, we're now wanting that uh, leaders of our frontline people to uh, do those things, you know, to be good servant leaders, to uh, be good coaches, to be good uh, leaders of, of those people, but very rarely do we give them the tools and the skills to help them help them do that. Has that been your observation? And You know, I, I think it's an interesting question, Ryan. I think the problem is you do have a lot of leaders prescribing culture. They sit around, they make up new values, and anytime there's, there's been a scandal, you change the values. So when there's been dishonesty, integrity is now a value. When there's been a bunch of lawsuits, diversity is now a value. When there's been a slowness to market, innovation is now a value. So anytime you change a culture to correct, you can be sure it won't work. You can be very confident that the last thing that's going to happen is people, people you're trying to fix don't want to be fixed. But the problem is once they've done it at the top and then put it on the wall and on the mugs and on the T-shirts and the screensavers, they actually think because that's their intention that it actually matches their actions. They don't give it another thought after the, the definition that this might not actually be how people experience organization. It doesn't occur to them that because they wrote it, that means people are going to just line up. So how you embed those standards down in training, in coaching, in um, all the devices that shape, you know, you can say we value empowerment, but if your governance structure sucks up decision-making to the top and people feel compressed, there's no empowerment. Okay. You can say you value collaboration, but if all your reward systems reward individual behavior and you have border wars at the seams, doesn't matter that you say we value teamwork, right? Mm -hmm. So unless you, unless you design the organization to produce the behavior you want, um, you won't get it. So I do think that there's lots of people spending lots of money on first-line supervisor training. Uh, in fact, I think, I think what's bizarre to me is that they spend more money on first-line and middle management training than they do on the executives. And the irony is the executives have a disproportionate level of influence and power over the performance of the organization, but they think, well, they've arrived as a vice president now, so they're done. Yes, yes. Which, of course, is such a fool's errand because that's the time when they're the least equipped to do that job, and all they're going to do is reach back for past successes mm -hmm. and do what, what got them there, which, of course, is the last thing they need to do. So I, I do think that unless we shape a set of behaviors and standards for the organization that we, we actually embed, but given the tools, the training, the coaching, the systems, the processes that actually align with those behaviors, we're just you know, rubbing a lamp when we write the behaviors down and assuming that they're actually going to appear on their own. Yeah, got it. Okay. Uh, Takes back. Number three. Uh, governance. So decision-making. If people believe that the way decisions are made in your organization is by some smoke-filled backstage room, and that when you, I, I walk into a meeting, that I'm, it's orchestrated theater, that you tell me I'm there to make a decision with you, but I can really tell you made it yesterday, and now you got, your job is to convince me that I was involved. We call that faux inclusion. Or that my, the, the, the most reliable sources of data are the rumor mill and the, and the hallway, and that the, the data with which you're making decisions that affect me or involve me in is not transparent and not honest, um, if that's the case, you're now three and a half times more likely to have people lie with all the truth. But if your governance is seen as transparent, open, accessible, you're three and a half times more likely to have people do the right thing and tell you the truth. And lastly, probably the one that surprised us the most was uh, collaboration. So if at the seams of your organization, the classic ones, sales and marketing, operations and R&D, supply chain and logistics, if at those seams you have unresolved conflict, competing metrics, um, competing missions, uh, leaders rivaling for the next position. If there are intractable conflicts there, you are six times more likely to have people lie, distort the truth, or behave unjustly. But if you have unity, in other words, if people sense that one plus one equals three, that we come together, we see each other as part of a bigger story, 
and we actually act as if our contributions come together for greater good, if that's the case, if you design your seams to produce that kind of behavior, now you're six times qualified to have people be honest, be forthcoming, uh, point out problems, and behave for a greater good. The painful part about the stat models is that they're cumulative. So if you have all four of those conditions in place, you are 16 times more likely to have people behave the way you want them to behave. Uh, in a just way, a truth-telling way, and an honest way. But if you're not, if those things don't exist in your organization, if you if your words and actions don't match, if your accountability is seen to be not fair, if your governance is not transparent, and if you have border wars at the seams, now you're 16 times more likely to be a headline that you never wanted to be. It means the ethical fungus is growing growing in your petri dish, and at some point, it's only a matter of time before uh, a scandal breaks or a, a misfortune happens. Sure. So I I tell leaders all the time, look. Here's the very simple litmus test. If there is not somebody in your office regularly, two, three, four times a week, comfortably telling you something that's uncomfortable to hear, you can be very confident your leadership sucks. I like that. It's a good thermometer. And and how many organizations uh, have you uh, worked with or you know, percentage-wise that you feel like are in that zone? When I, when I point that barometer out, it makes people squirm. Yeah, um, because the, the the natural tendency of leaders to assume no news is good news, right? Uh, of course, they would tell me if something was wrong. Of course, they would tell me if my behavior was frustrating to them. Of course, the meetings are open and transparent. People are telling what they think. Yeah. Um, of course, it's psychologically safe. What you know? Why would people be afraid of me? Um, until you get data that tells them people are terrified of you. Why? Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, Ron, I'm loving this. It's, it's generating so many uh, questions for me that I want to throw at you. Uh, first one, in your, in your research, did you look at financial performance of organizations uh, in correlation with, you know, whether they did or didn't have these behavior sets in place? Absolutely. There, um, uh, as, as one of our secondary, source, secondary research correlations, um, it's un- unequivocally and undeniable that the organizations that are more honest and just and purposeful by those four systems um, financially outperform, competitively outperform, and out-innovate their competitors. Right. Okay. And I I can uh, picture our audience members out there at the moment going, God, Ron, everything you say is making so much sense. You know, I can feel it. I've I've been in those positions. Um, I've probably got an organization that has all of those symptoms to some some degree and uh, they're going uh, totally understand why the other side of those symptoms is a much better place to be but how do I get there well so first of all there's some great news for the people who are who I've just terrified <laughs> what our statistical models show is that it's not about perfection right so mm-hmm. for example if you improve alignment between your actions and words strategically meaning your identity is more lived if you improve that that, that alignment by tw- even 20%, you get a 9% return on increased truth-telling and just behavior. So you don't have to go all the way to perfection. There are, there, there are, there are incremental ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Here's a simple one. How often do you, as a leader, sit around your meeting table, pull out your mission statement, pull out your value statement, pull out your brand promises, and say, hey, how well do we live these? Where are we not living them? And just talk about it. How often does your, does your executive team do a diagnostic work to actively understand how true are these to our people, how true are these to our customers? Mm-hmm. Ask. Yeah. Um, when, with regard to accountability, look at your engagement data. How much do people say, I trust my manager? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's only 58%, that means 42% don't trust your managers. That means you have 42% of your managers untrustworthy. Is that, is that, that's a D. Yeah, that's terrifying. 
And you think because it's up from 10% last year, it's a win. So you, um, when it comes to how you make decisions, um, have you talked about empowerment? Are the people at, at the lowest levels of your organization empowered with resources, authority, and, and present in the right governing mechanisms to contribute to those decisions? How often is their input solicited and acted upon? I mean, we all know we ask people's input and then we go do something else anyway. Do they actually feel like they were heard? Mm. When it comes to seams, rather than just doing team building because they're not getting along, how often do you bring sales and marketing R&D and operations together to say, let's talk about this relationship. What's the value we create together? So at the intersection of uh, marketing, customer service, and product development is where innovation happens. It takes all three. So have you brought them together and said, how are we innovation for the company? Because at the, at the top levels, you don't think about functions anymore. You think about capabilities, yes. right? The, se- the seams are what you care about. The functions are irrelevant to you. And the problem is if you grew up in a function, if you grew up in finance and you only see the world economically, or you grew up in marketing and you only see the world through consumers, you're already biased against the functions you're not looking at. But if you understand that at the top of the house, breath is important. Your job is to go from being first chair to being conductor and making all the music sound well. So you care about capabilities that come together at the seams of an organization and making sure those, those capabilities are performing competitively. When, you, when, it, when it comes to innovation, if you're in charge of that, you don't really care what function, what homeroom people come from. You know, get out of your homeroom, come to the table and deliver. That's a great sentiment, but do they know how to do it? Have you enabled them to understand how you may be the ambassador from customer analytics, you may be the ambassador from marketing, you may be the ambassador from R&D, but together you're the innovation team. That's what I care about. And have you enabled the organization to embrace that thinking? So there, there are very practical things you can do to improve those four areas um, and make your organization, it's not just about being more ethical or more honest, but a, a better place to work where people come to work every day saying, I get to, be, I get to become the best version of myself mm-hmm. um, and go home proud that I work here. So we've heard the term psychological safety as uh, uh, an important thing to have in our organisations. It's it, to me, it's a horrible term, but I get the essence of, of what it's trying trying to achieve. And if you bring, you know, that example we just talked about, Ron, of bringing different departments together to go, how do we collaborate? How do we find a, a common goal here? Um, you do need a environment that allows people to have really robust discussion, uh, call things out without the fear of being, uh, you know, belittled or shot down or their opinion not taken seriously. Uh, what's been your observation in organisations that are doing that doing that well? Um, psychological safety was one of the statistical dimensions in our research. The problem is it's it's necessary, but in and of itself, you can make it psychologically safe. It doesn't mean people will speak up. My experience is that you have to make it an expectation mm-hmm. that if you're in the meeting, you, um, so I've, ha- I've seen executives um, intentionally ask for dueling fact bases. Mm-hmm. So when you come in and make that pitch for that new product, I want you to come in and with a fact base of your own, refute that. Yep. And so you, you, you create the debate. But the, the other issue that I see companies do is they don't, it's, it's a skill, right? There's an art to how you say, gee, Ryan, I'm not sure how, if I agree with your point of view, can, you, uh, can I share a different point of view with you? Versus, hmm, Ryan, that's interesting. Versus, Ryan, you jerk. What the hell? You, you, really, you really believe that crap, right? So what, what is the skill set that I need to not tarnish the relationship, challenge a point of view, offer a dissenting view, and realize that conflict is the raw material of innovation, yes. right? Without the spark, yeah. there's no creativity. And if we're all going to be the same, must, some of us aren't, aren't needed here. So 
if you don't skill people with their understanding their own biases, understanding their own cognitive impairment, understanding their own triggers, understanding their own proclivity to conflict or candor, uh, and how to bring that about in a trust-based environment where the, the, the absolute raw thoughts are there while keeping the relationships intact and getting stronger. There's no injection for that. You have to work at it. Yeah. Um, and if you don't work at it and you think you can do it just by the normal course of your meetings, um, you're, you're delusional. Yeah. So you have to set the expectation, set the example, and build the equipment for it. And I, I, the companies that are doing it well do all three. Right. Um, many companies, unfortunately, announce, hey, guess what? It's not psychologically safe here. It's the same as the uh, values whacked on a poster on the wall, right? right? Uh, I, I think the one of the things that helped me get my own head around the uh, effective meetings, collaboration, psychological safety is the acknowledgement that collaboration does not look like everyone's sitting uh, in the room doing a group hug. You know, it's actually, it is a really challenging environment. That's what, that's what it looks like now. Uh, challenging in the sense that we can be open and I can say, hey, Ron, I don't agree with that. Here's my uh, reason why, you know, let's have, a, let's have a solid, robust discussion about that. Because I think the, the, probably the one, the scenario that you, you didn't mention and, and happens most common is the one where I sit in the room and go, oh, yeah, Ron, that's great. Good point. Good point. Well done. Well done. And then I leave the room, get in the corridor, pull my colleague aside and go, oh, wasn't that a load of rubbish that Ron was talking about? We're not really going to support that. You know, I think that's the, uh, the worst the, one. The infamous pocket veto. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it, and it, it's, a, it's incredibly duplicitous because what that person fails to realize is that if you just pulled your colleague aside and did that, you've now told them, you shouldn't trust me because I'm going to do it to you too. Totally. But, but that's the issue in governance uh, when, when collusion replaces transparency and collusion is the way we actually make decisions here. Now you're asking for trouble. So I also think to your point, we often confuse collegiality with collaboration. We all get along. Oh, no, we don't. Um, you, you may look like you're tacitly being courteous to each other, but you actually can't stand each other. I was working with a leadership team once, um, and oh my gosh, they weren't the prettiest piece of clip art. You had black, Asian, Hispanic, male, female, gay, straight. It, it was the most beautiful piece of diversity oh, clip art you ever saw. And they prided themselves on this. Um, and I sat through several days of their executive team meeting. And early on the second day, I said to them, I just want to point something out here there's not an ounce of diversity in this room, which of course they were like gasping. I'm like, you're pretty. You, 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 you got the capital D diversity down. You are the poster child. But when it comes to the small D diversity, let me go back to my notes from yesterday and this morning. And let me tell you all the ways you masterfully skirted conflict. Let's take this offline. I'm not sure this is the right meeting for that. We probably need more data for that. Let's sit on this and marinate for a while and come back to the next meeting. At every opportunity to avoid the differences among you, you sidestepped it. Mm -hmm. So what you've told yourselves is we're here to agree. So, uh, you know, call the question there. Uh, got to stick around and help them through that. I mean, those, those are the moments that often get us thrown out of the room. Uh, but that's what we're there for. I'm not going to collude with you. Yeah. But, but we confuse ourselves about what differences of you really mean and how, we, how would you know you actually had it uh, in the room because you intend to have it and actually having it turns out aren't the same. Yeah. And one takes a whole lot more effort than the other. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> one's really easy, actually. You right. can announce and declare anything you want. Totally.
Um, so tell, how did that story end? You know, when you called them out on it, what was the response and were you able to create? Ex- well, in the moment, they got extremely defensive mm-hmm. um, and tried to explain to me how all the differences were. I said, okay, well, I have a two-day data set. Maybe, the, maybe this meeting is an exception. Maybe in all the other meetings, you actually fight it out and get a, you know, really have duke it out. And I said, tell me a story. Tell me, give me an example about a time where you really came to blows um, intellectually over something and then went out for a beer later. And they had no examples. Mm-hmm. And after a while, the CEO, she paused and she said, let's be honest, he's right. Um, we don't like conflict. We, we, have, we have so worked hard on the capital D diversity of our organization. And they, and they had. They had won awards. Yes. The complexion of the organization truly was diverse. And I think a lot of companies think that if I get the big D, I automatically get small D. And, of course, that's foolish. Um, one does not beget the other. Is there, a, is there a scientific or neurological correlation between them? Maybe. But why would you make that bet? Um, you should have both, but both take different things to get. Um, you know, this week, I mean, I was on, I've been on five webinars this week with at Harvard Business Review and a bunch of other places where we talked about the racial issues this week and representation and how much more work we have to do in America to, to get true equality among representation and how underrepresented most people of color are. Um, that's one body of work. Mm-hmm. Um, we, and we're also not comfortable getting out of our echo chambers, right? We like division. We like, I mean, I, I, I just interviewed for my Forbes column, um, uh, Arthur Brooks, who wrote I Love Your Enemies, and how we are addicted to a culture of contempt. We love our echo chambers, and we love the we versus they thing. We, we all have a they. And I, in my column, I say, who is your, we all have a they, who's your they? And, and how are you spending time with them, and how have you vilified them? And why, who's they are you? And if you don't get out of your echo chamber and go spend time with your they and be willing to have your mind changed, you aren't open-minded. So be, be honest about that. You want to be closed-minded and always believe you're right? That's fine. That you, you can do that. But don't masquerade as somebody who's open to the views of others. Yes. Yep. Good insights. Uh, tell me, Ron, what surprised you most in the research you've just done? I think it was the collaboration. One. I think it was the, the huge factor that embedded uh, rivalry has on truth-telling um, because what, what happens is once you fragment the organization you fragment the truth so now I no longer have the truth I have dueling truths and I think uh, especially in America but I think around the world we have so conflated speaking your truth with speaking the truth and we've told people that if you adopt the posture of a big middle finger and have outrage it's truthful um, so we've said that means if you say it with enough conviction it means you're right and we've, so we shut down listening, we've shut down openness. And yet it's only at the intersections of the organization where differences have to be surfaced and embraced and, and cared for and enjoyed. And so I think the, the, the significance of that um, multiplier, uh, I, w- I was not expecting that. Um, so um, I think that what excited me most about it was the justice factor, was that orga- organizational injustice can be rectified. And that leaders have the power, and and, and it is because they have power, disproportionate ability to right wrongs. Every company has a process that's not fair. You know, that's whether it, how it allocates resources, or how it makes choices, or how it makes assignments for projects, or how it selects, or how it rewards. There is some process that is unfair, not unfair to everybody, but if it's unfair to, to somebody, then it's unfair. Period. Mm. Um, inequity is different than unfair. And not every process will, will be equitable all the time. Mm. But if it's downright unfair, uh, it doesn't mean it's discriminatory. 
But if it, if somebody is perpetually disadvantaged because 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 they're your they, mm-hmm. then you if you turn a blind eye to that, you are telling people it's okay for someone to be disadvantaged in our community, in our organization, in our process, and just be prepared. That means if at some point they have to make a choice that disadvantages you, you've told them it's okay. You've told them prioritize self interest over collective interest. Mm. You have to accept the consequences of that when they come. Yeah. And I can see how uh, the thought of transforming your organization on each of these elements can seem daunting and overwhelming. But if leaders were to simply think about each of those elements of a lens and when they're making a decision uh, of consequence that they literally cast that lens over that decision and going, what would be the effect of the organization using that lens? Uh, I think it would uh, give them far better decision-making and influence their organizations in a better way. Uh, and you can do it kind of one step at a time without kind of going, oh my God, how do I change everything today? And I think there's four simple questions they can ask. Are we who we say we are? Is my decision-making predictable? Meaning if we're headed into a hard choice, could somebody reasonably forecast what I'm going to do? And if they can't, or if they predict that you're going to be dishonest and not tell them the truth, Yes. That's not good. But have I created a, a sense of transparency such that people can decode my criteria? Is contribution fair? Do people feel like they matter? Yes. And are there border wars? Are there, are there rivalries here that I've, I've dismissed as, oh, everybody knows sales and marketing doesn't get along. Yeah. Or they've been at each other's throats for 20 years. We all know it. And have you, and have you dismissed those border wars as inconsequential? Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, they, they are great, uh, great questions. That provides a great, great frame for people. Hey, Ron, your insights have been fantastic. I really enjoyed them. I think there's going to be a whole bunch of our audience sitting there going, hurry up and finish the book. We want to read it. Uh, have you got a timeline when, when you think? Uh, it, well, so a couple of things. It will be out uh, in the spring of 2021. But a couple of things you can do. Now. So I've got the research is published at HBR. Mm-hmm. So I can, I, uh, you include the article in your show notes. It's called Four Ways Lying Becomes the Norm at a Company. Okay. Uh, published last year, so you can put the, the link there that has all the stats and the findings. Um, I will, I will this later this fall. I'm going to be launching a uh, mini-sode series called Moments of Truth, which will be sort of interviews with exemplars and great leaders from great companies uh, and known CEOs and thought leaders that will launch all the way through the book launch. So you'll get little teasers and excerpts from the book along the way. So uh, the, the book will be available for pre-order on Amazon in August. So we're right around the corner from that. Okay. So uh, I, can, I can give you doses and holdovers until the book is launched. Yeah, nice. And uh, tell us where's the best place for people to connect and follow you? Yep. So if you come find me at Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com, we've got lots of great videos and resources and white papers and fun things to hang out on in terms of content. Um, we have a free ebook. So if you're leading some massive transformation in your organization, you can come to Navalent.com slash transformation and get our free ebook on our playbook for doing that. Please follow me on Twitter and please follow me on LinkedIn and come keep, keep chatting and let's hang out. Great job. Hey, Ron, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk. Thanks for your uh, insights. And uh, don't forget to come on down to NZ some point and experience our beautiful country too. I cannot wait to come to Auckland. I have many friends there and I, I'm itching to come visit. Ryan, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for your insights and thanks for your good work in the world. Cheers. Thanks, Ron.